The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. So, uh, as you remember, if you were here last week, one of the things that we're going to do during this marriage and relationships series is have some of our friends who are married talk about their relationship in one way or another. And uh, last week, Jonathan and Chrissy did that, and we enjoyed their story. And today, um, Paul and Leanne Nelson are here, and um, they would, uh, I asked them, and they graciously agreed to share um, a story of their own. So... Take it away, guys. Last summer, uh, we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. <laughs> Given the number of years in our age, we have to have notes so we don't ramble on for days. Before Paul says it, I'm going to tell you that these have been 15 of the happiest years of my life. I'm the youngest of four from a fundamentalist preacher family. And I am the oldest of six from a fundamentalist preacher family. We met in 1969 in northern Minnesota. Another preacher kid friend of ours wanted to arrange a blind date for us. I had never been on a blind date, so I asked her to the drive-in movie myself. We both had other dates on the 4th of July, so we made plans for the 5th which was dollar night at the drive-in. Six weeks later, I gave her a ring. I bought it wholesale. (laughs) (laughs) We set the date for one year later, and then Paul went back to Chicago for his third year of college. That long-distant relationship was sometimes difficult, but my father loved Leanne. Because of him, we stayed together. After the wedding, we moved and lived near Wrigley Field, moved to Chicago and lived near Wrigley Field. When Paul graduated, we decided to celebrate by bicycling to the West Coast. That was a lot more work than we imagined. So we sold our bikes in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, we bought backpacks and hitchhiked from there to British Columbia and then back to Minnesota. That was the era of peace and love and all that went along with that, including hitchhiking. When I arrived back home, or when we arrived back home in August, my father was dying of cancer. We stayed with him and my mom until uh, the end of October, which he had died. And then we moved back to Chicago again. Our first daughter, Dallas, in the red. Raise your hand, Dallas. <laughs> was born about a year later, and I became stay-at-home mom. On my way to work one morning, I was hit by a car on my bicycle, and the same day, someone pulled a knife on me. So, one month later, we were moved to Iowa, <laughs> where our second daughter, Jade, was born. 
I stayed home with the kids. Paul worked and carried the health insurance. By this time, we had quit church, except when the family came to visit us. We both had very painful experiences growing up in the church. When we look back now, uh, we tell ourselves that we needed a break. Then Paul's aunt invited us and our kids to her church in order to increase numbers for their Sunday school contest. It worked. We told ourselves our kids would needed to learn the Bible stories in order to talk with our families or <laughs> maybe win a grand prize on a game show someday. We had no idea that we would come to understand grace in that church. We eventually landed at First Covenant Church in Mason City, Iowa, where we experienced grace for the first time. And that's a whole other story. After attending 10 years, I became a member. It took me 12. I'm the, tr I'm the trusting one. <laughs> <laughs> By that time, we were empty nesters and needed couples counseling. Our focus had been our kids for nearly 20 years, and we had lost track of each other. In 1996, I bicycled from Seattle, Washington, to Portland, Maine with my two daughters. And that was my first visit to upstate New York, which was the second friendliest place on our trip. North Dakota was first, but I think they were just glad to see a new face. And here we are in the second friendliest place. Now, I'm carrying the health insurance, and Paul is a stay-at-home grandpa. Uh, my official title is Grandpa Nanny. <laughs> Today's topic is myths and misconceptions about relationships. I thought that I knew men when Paul and I got married. After all, I grew up with three brothers and a dad. I assumed that Paul would naturally know how to build houses and change the oil on the car. I discovered I do have a talent for deconstruction. <laughs> Mr. Destructo. Um, what I did not know, that a woman could be so loving, kind, supportive, and understanding. Not until we had been married a couple decades, at least. Um, and that's a whole nother story, too. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Thank you, guys. I love hearing those, those stories. Um, my mom is actually with us today. You want to raise your hand, Mom? So... Uh, and she and my dad just uh, two days after Christmas celebrated 36 years of marriage together, um, which is pretty impressive if you've met my dad. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I asked her this morning if, if she had any, you know, you know, is there anything that you expected going into marriage that, that didn't turn out to be right? And she said, well, we talked about some things together. So I think we had a pretty good sense of it, but... He did promise me that he wouldn't do what my dad always did whenever my mom complained about something being wrong with the car and just blow her off. And I'm not really sure he kept that promise. <laughs> and uh, my wife made a sort of snorting sound, which I'm not, I, I don't know quite what that meant, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but I did remember that the check engine light is on in the car and that uh, Tracy seemed more worried about that than me. But <laughs> um, Let me invite Christy Walsh up. Uh, today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to um, have the great pleasure of having Christy be involved with our sermons. And uh, Christy has, um, in a lot of ways, way more qualification to talk about relationships than I do. Um, she's, uh, she has a master's in social work, a master of arts in clinical psychology. She's a PhD student focusing on romantic relationships, clinical psychology. And uh, she's done a lot of counseling. And she's done a ton of research over the course of several years in um, romantic relationships. And so she has some really wonderful insight to add to, to this topic. And so she's going to be with us for the next few weeks. And I'll, I'll say again what I said at the outset, which is that during any of these messages, if you have questions for either one of us, um, please write them down on an info card. And, and if you didn't get one of those, we can get one to you. Um, or write it down on anything, really. It doesn't have to be an info card. And, and just put it in the offering basket. And then in future weeks, we'll, um, we'll be able to answer some of those questions as we go. So uh, there'll be a little bit of give and take. Um, so we are talking, as Leon mentioned, about myths and misconceptions um, in relationships. And I think what the, the big thing really is, is that sometimes we have expectations going into something that aren't met once we're... Once it's too late, you might say. Um, I wouldn't say too late, but once we're already in there. And I think that there's, there's a handful, at least, of, of false expectations that we sometimes have about love and romance and marriage. And we carry those with us into our relationship, and then they, they become this wedge between us because our partner doesn't live up to those expectations. And meanwhile, we're not living up to our partner's expectations. And, and so we get driven further and further apart. And so I think it would be a very healthy thing for us to think about some of those expectations that are probably inappropriate and to, if we're already married, say, okay, we need to work on letting go of that, right? But if we're not already married, to think about what those might be so that we don't have to carry them into the relationship in the first place, right? And so I said last week, and it's true, that I really think and hope that all of these topics will be useful to people regardless of whether they're already married or or in a relationship, or single, or what. But this week of all of them is probably the most useful to somebody who's not yet in a relationship because there's, some, there's a little preventive maintenance type of things that you can do. So to, to start out, I want to look at a little, a, little bit, a little small passage in the Bible here. And last week we looked at tons of stuff in the Bible. So if you feel like today's message is not biblical quite enough for you, <laughs> um, get the podcast from last week because we talked about Bible, Bible, Bible the whole time. Um, <laughs> you'd think we believed it was true. Um, it, the truth is that today there's, there's probably more just kind of common sense and experiential and uh, research and uh, that kind of thing that, that we're going to talk about. But we want to start out with this biblical basis, and it's actually a few verses ahead of the thing we talked about last week, which was the husbands and wives and um, submission and love and all that stuff. And if those things are going, whoa, I need to hear that, um, you can, again, can get the podcast. But this is just a few verses ahead of that, Ephesians 5, and it's page 952 if you'd like to follow along, but it's just a few verses, 15 through 18. He says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. 
So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on to name what the will of the Lord is. And guess what? It's not like go to Greece. It's, it's things about how you live your life in general. When we talk about God's will in the Bible, that's really what we're talking about. And included in that is the, is the instructions for how households ought to live together. But I want to focus on that very beginning part of the, the passage that says, Be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise people. Um, and that's really the basis for all that we're going to talk about. Simply think critically about this stuff and live wisely, not unwisely. All right. So we have, Chrissy and I have a series of myths here that we want to share with you today. And I have a, I have a few and she has a few. And you'll, you'll hear our, our different um, own experiences and, and perspectives coming through and how these come across. I'd like to start with, with myth number one, which I call the myth of the one. Right? You probably can already guess what this one is. Have you ever heard somebody say, I just need to find the one? Right? Or, I've, never, I've been in relationships before, but it, it was so obvious they weren't the one. You've heard this, Right? Boy, that sounds awful sweet, but I think, unfortunately, it's nonsense. And in this case, I can't show you a Bible verse that says there is no one specific person out there in the world for you that God has for you, but guess what? You can't show me a Bible verse that says that there is. And so the myth of the one relies on what's called an argument from silence, Right. I have to just say, the Bible doesn't say this. And so if you have the perception, if you have the belief that there's one perfect person waiting somewhere out there, one in six billion, you ha- I need to ask you, where does that come from? And I would gently propose that it probably comes from pop culture and pop theology. And if we want to get a little hairy from philosophical assumptions that invaded Christianity at a very early early time, but which are not Christian or Jewish for that matter. They're Greek pagan philosophy. Um, And the church struggles with this in a lot of different ways. Um, You you know, it starts to really hit home with Augustine, who is is essentially a Neoplatonist, but we don't need to go down that that heavy uh, philosophy road. But I just, let me repeat, the idea that there is one special person out there that God has that you need to find, that needle in a haystack, that's wedding toast theology, right? That's not biblical theology. And so the consequences of this myth, myth, this myth, I think, are that it gives you a reason to stop working on your relationship. It gives you a really good one, actually, if you believe this is true. Uh, Things were good for a while. Now they're not so good. She's clearly not the one. He's clearly not the one. I'm going to pull the parachute string. I need to find the one. Sorry. Let's not work on it anymore. Now you're going to hear a bias from both of us today toward working on things together. And I don't want you to hear us saying that it's never okay to, to separate. There are times when, it's, when 
he's not the one and he's not even close, okay? Um, that's not really where we're going with this. But it does give you a reason sometimes. And there's that tiny voice inside you that says, oh, don't, don't waste your time with this anymore. You have to go find your true destiny. I think it's a myth. Myth number two, what I have uh, jokingly titled the romantic comedy fallacy. We've all seen this scene played out, right? In a movie. <clears throat> Young couple, passionately in love. But before long, usually coincidentally enough, right about the end of the first act, things grow a little bit cold and they begin to argue and they drift apart and work comes between them and and one of them is obviously shown to be the victim in the relationship. And that's when Owen Wilson shows up. <laughs> or Jennifer Aniston, or whomever you like. And pretty soon there's a new romance cooking and we're all rooting for it. Right? And our, our poor neglected hero or heroine is whisked away to greener pastures. This is insidious. The danger here, and this is so often the case, it's almost like there's somebody out there to get you. The first part of the story is absolutely true. And the second part of the story is a lie from the pit of hell. Research has demonstrated conclusively that, that couples experience a dip in happiness after a little while. After a year or two or a few years, sometimes coincident with the birth of children, sometimes it's the seven-year itch. Over and over again, you see that that's true. Uh-oh. <laughs> this kid is great. <laughs> he knows just when to laugh. He knows just what to say to add to the thing. So if you're, the point is, if you're a few years into a relationship or into a marriage and things are starting to, to feel a little bit less fun, if you're a little bit less happy, you are not alone. That happens to just about every couple. And that it, the lack of a spark or of happiness day in and day out, like you had on your honeymoon, is not an indication that the relationship has fallen apart. It's tempting to think when that spark fades, when that initial happiness fades, you know, if there's nothing here, something must be wrong. If I'm not feeling this today, this is clearly not a good relationship. And the flame has gone out. And, and I guarantee you, again, it's almost like there's somebody out there to get you, that that is the moment that Jennifer Aniston will appear in your life or Owen Wilson. And you're going to be tempted to say, oh, it just died. I don't know what to say. It just died. And then you're going to move on to this next thing. And there's going to be sparks and it's going to be great and passion, passionate. But I promise you, I promise you, probably even faster this time, Owen Wilson's crooked little nose is going to start to get on your nerves. <laughs> Jen is going to mention Brad one too many times. The spark will go out. And guess what? Now you're conditioned to think that the proper response to that is to find something new. See, we think the key is to be in a good relationship, as if it's this abstract thing out there that affects us, a good relationship, but the key is to be in good relationship with each other. 
right? and with God. Okay, I'm, I'm going too long. Let me turn it over to Christy for um, a few more myths. Okay, so I'm actually going to go into some myths that are a little bit... Um, they're a little bit more practical, I guess, or tangible. Um, and I want you to know that I am going to be talking a lot about research and what, like, therapy, marital therapist and marital therapy says. And this is all based on secular research. Secular marital therapy, I'm not taking this from focus on the family. So hopefully that will give you a little bit of, it'll give it some credibility um, in your eyes. Um, <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to totally slam focus on the I might work for them one day. I, th- I think that endears you to people who do that in this room. <laughs> um, so the, myth, the first myth that I'm going to talk about is the idea of, let's try living together first. That sounds like a good idea, right? It's a good idea. We can see if we fit. We can see if we are made to live together, if we're made to be married. I'm sure you guys know people in your, in your family, you know friends, maybe yourself, that you've been like, yeah, it's easier to do that. We'll save on rent. We already spend all of our time together anyway. Let's just go ahead and live together. Studies have shown pretty unequivocally, unequivocally that um, living together before marriage is not the good idea that everybody thinks it is. Um, it has been linked to higher rates of divorce later, um, more negative interactions with your spouse, fewer positive interactions, you're less happy if you've lived together first. And this is for people who have not only lived just with the person that they marry, but also numerous people. So it's living together with someone before you get married is bad news. Um, there's also increased risk of like violence, um, less dedication to your relationship, less confidence in your relationship. And it's still significant even when um, they control for the influence of religiosity. So a lot of people think, oh, well, you find this, that's just because, you know, people are less religious and maybe it's a little bit more okay for, you know, them if they choose divorce. This is controlling for religiosity. Living together before you get married is bad news. <laughs> um, it just has, it's associated with a lot of negative outcomes. And so there's been a lot of talk about, okay, well, why might this be the case? What's going on here? Um, and the primary argument for why this might be the case is this idea of deciding versus sliding. Um, that people who maybe are living together before they get married, well, it's a lot easier to slide into marriage because if you don't, then, you know, like you have to deal with, like, you know, separating your stuff and the house and everything. And so you haven't really made a firm commitment to be married. You're just like, ah, it's easier to get married since we're living together, so let's just do it. So the idea there is really not making a firm commitment, deciding versus sliding. Um, I know a lot of people who know this research and they think, oh, well, it doesn't apply to me. And they still live together with their partners before they get married or live with someone who maybe, you know, someone else. And then it's before they get married. And <clears throat> it seems really strange that, you know, like you can be confronted with this thing that's pretty universal in many, 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 many different studies. It's even called something. It's called the cohabitation effect. It's got a name. Um, it's, it's interesting that you can look at this and be like, no, it doesn't apply to me. We'll, we'll be okay. Like, love conquers all. We're different. Um, but the numbers are there. They don't lie. So it's something to pay attention to. Um, like Scott was saying earlier, we're supposed to live wisely. We're supposed to live in purity. And so we need to make wise choices. So if you are single and this is an option for you or you're thinking about it or maybe you're living with your partner right now and you aren't married, you have the chance to change. 
to actually kind of take a step back and say, no, like maybe it's wiser for me to not do this. Not only because there's a lot of clear indication from the Bible that this wouldn't be a good thing for me, but also because secular research has been showing it's not good. But I also want to say that if this is your background, you're not doomed either. I mean, I know that, you know, everybody has different paths and everybody comes from different um, situations. It's just that you have to be aware of the fact that this might be in your background. So the deciding versus sliding thing comes in again. If you and your spouse lived together before you were married, be aware of, like, how did you make that decision? Was it something that you just kind of slid into because it was easier? Or was it something that you actually decided? And if it was something you slid into but your relationship's important to you, start making the decision to to commit and to be like to decide instead of slide so again it's not like okay the door's closed on you you can't do anything you just need to act differently now you need to be aware of the things that you come into your relationship with and another sort of related issue along those lines that a lot of people think oh it doesn't apply to me our love is enough like we'll totally like we'll be fine with this is um being with a partner or marrying somebody who has a different faith than you This is another thing that has been shown in research to be associated with higher risk of divorce, higher conflict, um, more negative outcomes. Now, why would this be the case? You probably can think of some of the reasons why. Having a common faith practice is really strengthening to couples. It's a source of unity and encouragement. Um, But again, if this is your background, that doesn't mean that you're doomed. It doesn't mean that you can't be successful. It just means that you have a different set of um, situations and factors that you need to take account of. You need to talk to your partner about your expectations. You need to, you know, be aware of being respectful of their beliefs. And you need to have good communication about it. So it's just some things to be aware of. And if you have the opportunity to make choices in certain directions, make the wise choice. If you have already, if you already have this in your background, then just figure out, okay, well, these are things that we need to deal with and that we need to be smart about, and we need to just talk and have good communication about it. Um, so the next myth that I'm going to talk about is the idea that we've already talked about everything. We don't need premarital counseling. Engaged couples say this a lot. I've heard this from so many, so many people who are like, no, 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 we're happy, we're fine, everything's perfect. Or people who live together, they're like, no, no, we know each other, we've already gone through all that stuff, we know how to handle finances. Or people who've been together for a long time. Like, I've heard so many people say this to me. They're like, no, we don't need that. That's not, like, really that true. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So, first of all, know that when you're engaged and when you're in your first year of marriage, that is the highest the highest point of satisfaction that you're going to be at. You're going to be the happiest. You're going to be like, oh, my partner's wonderful. I love everything about them. Everything's perfect. So naturally, you're going to think, no, we don't have any problems. We have nothing that we need to talk about. Um, But research suggests, again, that premarital counseling, premarital education can be really helpful. Um, And first, let me explain what I mean by premarital counseling, the type that's helpful. it's the type that is, t- is teaching you skills, so things like communication skills, conflict resolution skills. It's usually coming in the form of workshops or multiple meetings, multiple sessions. You're actually learning things, and you're talking about things, too, like your roles, your expectations, unspoken expectations. Um, I'm not talking about meeting one time with your pastor, the one who's going to marry you in that church downtown, and you just like sit and talk about awkwardly about your wedding or whatever. That's not, that's not the type that works. Um, Premarital counseling is helpful because it gives you increased ability to solve problems. It decreases marital conflict. It increases marital satisfaction, decreases rates of divorce. It's really helpful. Um, 
And I also have like kind of a, a bias on this too. There are particular programs that are really helpful. One is called PrEP. Um, it's the Prevention and Relationship Enhancement Program. That one has been shown to be extremely effective. Again, ones that focus on skill building, that are multiple sessions that you get to meet with a counselor, you get to meet with your pastor, and you get to learn about each other and you get to build skills that are going to help you. Um, another reason just to go, that it's a good idea to go for premarital counseling or premarital education, um, kind of a common wisdom among marital therapists, is that you probably haven't talked about everything. You maybe think that you have, but there's a lot of things that are unspoken that you maybe learned in your family background, for example. Like, with Jonathan and I, something really insignificant. Going out to dinner, his family was, you always buy the cheapest thing on the menu, you never get dessert, you never get appetizers, nothing. You're, the point is to go out to eat as inexpensively as possible. <laughs> My family's not like that. <laughs> My family's like, we're going out to eat, let's enjoy the experience. Get whatever you want on the menu, maybe let's share dessert and appetizer. And so this is something that I wouldn't necessarily think to tell him because... Well, my family does it, and everybody does it. Everybody knows that, right? You, you get what you want. Who cares? No. And he's thinking, you get the cheapest thing. Of course. That's what everybody does. This is something that's an area of potential conflict, and we wouldn't necessarily have talked about it. And those of you who are engaged or married may not have necessarily talked about the things like that with you either. And, you know, thinking about it, too, we've got a 40 to 60% divorce rate in our country right now for first marriages, 40 to 60% chance that you could get divorced. Why not set yourself up for success with something like premarital um, counseling? It just kind of makes sense that living wisely. And then the final um, myth that I'm going to talk about today is the myth that um, children are the first priority. Children are number, number one. They come before my spouse. Um, and I do want to communicate. Artisan, at Artisan, we love the kids in our congregation. The things that I'm, I'm saying are not to discount that, and it's not to say that they're not loved and important and a part of our community. But um, I know families with young children especially, it's a real temptation to put your child first because their needs are there, and they really, you know, they require attention, they require your care, and to say, you know, like, my spouse is an adult, they can handle you know, being on the back burner for a while. It's totally okay. Like, they'll, they'll get it. It's fine. Um, but research suggests that during pregnancy, during the first one to two years of a child's life, and some research su suggests even, like, you know, through multiple years of a child's life, that parents are less happy in their relationships, that they have increased conflict, that they have, that it's hard. And everybody knows this already, Right. Um, it makes sense in, in light of just um, changing responsibilities, figuring out how you're going to, you know, divvy out household roles. Um, you have less sleep. You have less sex. <laughs> All these things, you know, combine to make it a really stressful, hard time. So it's more important, not less important, to build into your spouse. To not, to put your, yourself and your spouse, your relationship first, and the kids will benefit from that. Um, marital therapists largely advise you need to make your relationship with your spouse the first priority. Um, you're not neglecting your kids if you spend time alone together without them. Kids will pick up on um, distress. They'll pick up on you guys not connecting. They'll pick up on these things. It's important to give them quality time, yes, but it's important to provide a, an emotional environment that is, that is um, soothing, that is caring, that is filled with love between you and your spouse. Um, so some of the ways that you can make your marriage the first priority when you have kids is just to things like spending time together 
when you, and going out on dates, going outside of the house, not inside the house. Sometimes it's really easy to be like, oh, well, we'll just have a date. We'll just have a movie night. And then you think, oh, well, there's like this pile of laundry over here. I'm just going to go do this over here. Or I'm just going to get on email right now. And that's not spending time together. That's being at your house and then slowly separating and the responsibilities and chores of home take over. So spend time together outside of your house. The money that you spend on babysitting will be worth it. Your kids will appreciate and they'll know that you guys are connecting and that you guys are, are solid together. And it's also important, too, to have an effort to have non-kid and non-responsibility or chore-related conversation because this will help you to be able to continue your relationship when, you know, when the kids are you know, out of the nest. You guys can keep talking. You still have a relationship. Um, and talk to each other and express your affection and your appreciation for what your spouse is doing with your kids. Um, but it's really important to put your spouse first during this time, even though it's really hard. Great. So our final myth today is the you complete me myth, right? <laughs> and you might be saying, well, that's Jerry Maguire. Shouldn't that go in the romantic comedy fallacy? But the problem is that it's neither romantic nor comedic, so um, it needs to stand on its own, the you complete me myth. <clears throat> so I think that in addition to being basically a sappy pop culture uh, pablum, uh, <laughs> that the you-complete-me myth is, is probably the result of an overzealous interpretation of Genesis 2.24. Remember last week when we were doing the biblical basis for marriage, we started with Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve, right? And um, here we go. At the, at the end of the story of the creation of, of Eve, um, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Remember we talked about that? And so that's, a, that's a, a biblical principle that undergirds all of our understanding of marriage. And I think what it sometimes ends up looking like is we think of this, you complete me, um, nonsense. Um, <clears throat> what that verse means is that when, when two people get married... That's, it's a sacred and a spiritual bond. That it creates a new future together, a whole world of new possibilities to be experienced together. And that God is present in that union. And it's very real and very deep and very sacred. And that's a significant interpretation of that passage, I think. What it doesn't mean, and this would be going too far, in my opinion is that when you get married, you lose your own identity. You're no longer a person. You are a spouse. What it doesn't mean is that you are nothing without your husband or without your wife. That you need to neglect everything that you were and did before to this completely new reality together. Aside from just being, I think, too much based on that, that biblical basis that we talked about. I think it's extremely risky to think this way because we are not guaranteed an entire lifetime with our partner, are we? Like it or not, people get divorced, and, and it's not 
always or probably even usually because they've come to mutual agreement that they should not be together anymore. Sometimes somebody does something extremely harmful and it's time to part ways. And if you've had it in your head up until that point, this person completes me, I was incomplete before, without this person I will be incomplete again. That's going to, I mean, separation and divorce is hard enough and we'll talk about that in week four at greater length. Without that extra spiritual baggage that you're now not a complete person, that your identity is somehow severed. And I don't want to be too morbid, but there are other reasons why husbands and wives don't spend their entire lives together. Sometimes somebody dies, and, it's, and you, had, you could have had the most perfect relationship in the world, and suddenly it's over. And if your identity had been... Com- completely wrapped up in your, in your marriage as, as this unit, this new thing. Again, you're going to be going through one of the hardest times of your life, and on top of that, you're going to add this extra spiritual baggage, which I think is an appropriate interpretation of the text, and also based on, again, a line from a movie. Right? I mean, it's literally a line from a movie, but it's also a, a concept that we get from from movies. <laughs> I think healthy individuals make healthy marriages. Right? If I, as a husband, can, can deepen my identity as an individual in Christ, then I'm going to be a blessing to my wife, Tracy. If Chrissy uh, deepens her own identity... In Christ, she's going to be a blessing to her husband, Jonathan. And so, yes, let's not discount the very real, very wonderful and deeply meaningful and theological union that happens in marriage. But let's not take that to the nth degree and lose our own identities as we come together as one. One of the things I said at the beginning uh, this morning is that most of these myths have to do with with something outside ourselves, whether it's our partner or whether it's the relationship not meeting up with our expectations. And I think that just as we close here, this is is an important point to focus on because if if we can emphasize our desire to fulfill God's expectations of ourselves as as people including how we interact with each other. And that's what the Ephesians 5 stuff we talked about last week really drives home. That's going to improve our relationships. And so losing this, this mythological baggage that we have and instead focusing on what our identity is and our relationship with God is and our relationship with other people is will provide the proper foundation for romantic relationships that hopefully turn into marriage and a lifelong commitment um, together. So the key is to find your identity in something that is eternal rather than something that is temporal. And if you can both do that, then when you do make that union where the two become one flesh, you're going to be so much better off. And I think the good news is that even if you didn't have that perspective when you started out together, it's a good way to 
begin to solve the problems you might be having, to realign your expectations, to refocus your life, and to find a source for your identity that, that is the proper source, a creator, then you're going to be better off going forward in the relationship that already exists. Let's close with prayer. God, as we've considered uh, some of the uh, cultural implications for our understanding of marriage and some of the practical and demonstrated by research implications on our marriages, um, we've been challenged, and we trust that that challenge Uh, comes from your spirit, Uh, even at times when it's based on something uh, that we might consider secular or simply common sense. Um, But we pray that as we consider all these facts and propositions, that we would live not as unwise people, but as wise people, making the most of the time that we've been given. And we pray that you would help each one of us in this room to secure our identity in your son, Jesus. And to make that the starting point for our relationships with each other. Give us so much grace for those times when we have placed unreasonable expectations on our partners. and for when they have done the same to us. And help us to get past that, to move into a place where our expectations are godly and realistic, and so that, so that your Spirit would overflow in us, that the love that we have felt would become a love that we do and continue to celebrate and enjoy for our lives together. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the way that we identify ourselves as part of God's family, as followers of His Son, Jesus Christ, is to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to come to His table. And so I'd welcome you to do that now. Any, anybody here today who would like to participate in this sacrament as a follower of Jesus is welcome to do so. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a member of our church or our denomination. Uh, it's an open table. And uh, you're welcome to do that with your children as well if you'd like. Uh, if, you prefer, if, you're, if you have kids who are at the other end and you'd like to go get them beforehand, it's okay. If you'd like to do it together today without them, that's okay too. Just don't forget they're down there. Um, And uh, we'll continue to worship in song, uh, but come to the table uh, as you hear the call of God in your life. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast. 
or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.